This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Doug Collum and Irene Yen. Welcome to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We broadcast live from the campus of Wharton San Francisco in downtown San Francisco, which is right next door to Silicon Valley. And I'm your host, Irina Yen, along with my co-host, Doug Collum. And coming up in the first hour of today's show, we'll be speaking with Duke Chung, the CEO and co-founder of Travel Bank. And joining us in our second hour will be Lauren Farley, the CEO and co-founder of shopping app Dote. So for those of you who have been... uh dialed into our program previously, you know that this is all about entrepreneurship and startups and venture capital. We do focus mostly on companies that are based here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, that's, that's our mission. That's our mandate. And I think we've been pretty faithful to it. Our, our show broadcasts every Monday at 4 o'clock p.m. Uh, Pacific time. That catches the East Coast commute right. as well at 7 p.m. Eastern. And then if you miss the program... Uh, on the Monday that it airs, it does re-air several times during the course of the week. You know, one thing I would offer too, and Irina and I, you know, we talked about this before the show began. Our original mission really was to focus on venture-backed tech companies Mm -hmm. here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And that covers a lot of ground. It covers most of the venture capital community. It covers a ton of entrepreneurs. It covers a lot of the companies uh, from very early stage startup to large, iconic growth companies, tech companies, right. Mm-hmm. right. But um, I would say more recently, and, and, and by the way, we've been doing this, we were also sharing this, we've been doing this program, Irina and I as co-hosts, for four years now. Right. So we actually have a fair number of guests who have come on the program, and we've been fortunate in that regard. Right. But this really is a, a call to action, if you will, to those people who do listen in, and we'll give you contact information Recently, we've been trying to expand our mission to get outside of tech and get outside of uh, kind of the companies that have traditionally formed the sweet spot for Bay Area Ventures. Right. And just expand, like expand even within that, um, just the different topics that as we see on the horizon that we're hearing more about to help um, just help our listeners understand and get a glimpse like the story behind the headlines, if you will. Um, right. So, I mean... Topics that occur to us that would be interesting for listeners to to dial in on. Um, Number one would be um, space technologies. You know, space is not the final frontier. It's the next frontier. And we've had a couple of companies on the program Mm -hmm. uh, who are engaged in different types of technologies that have applications in in space. Right. Right. So that would be one. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one might be uh, we've, we've seen recently publicity about... Um, innovations and new technologies showing up in mass transit. So Elon Musk is famous for having conceived of this notion of something called a hyperloop. I don't know what the status on that is, but that would be something that would be fascinating to get a speaker on the program who's involved in that technology, involved in those companies, and to come come speak to us. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot we're hearing about, or I'm sure listeners are reading about um, in the financial technology sector, in the areas of Bitcoin. What does that mean for me? Or does it mean anything for me? Or is it something, it seems kind of like esoteric. So that'd be really interesting to explore a little more deeply with our listeners. And also related to that is like blockchain technology. I think folks are hearing a lot about that and it applies across Many industries not limited to just financial technology, so that's also an interesting area. You know, I, t- I teach a class with one of the professors at Wharton on uh, venture, venture capital and startups, and it's cl- we used to think traditionally, I mean, up until this, this last year, uh, he and I would think, you know, we don't need to address a Bitcoin-based company because it's such a weird-ass technology. It's a wild, wild west. There's nobody doing it. Is there a there, there, all that stuff? And now yeah. suddenly it's clear there is. Mm-hmm. So we can know, I, I, can't, I can't assume that it's not relevant. So that would be something that was, would be interesting. And then shifting gears and looking at things slightly differently. Right, females in Silicon Valley, women in uh, venture capital, for example. I think we're seeing more of that. There is definitely a conversation here in the Valley about that generally both on the entrepreneur, entrepreneur side of the house and also on the investor side of the house. And we're seeing a lot of changes, but it'll be interesting to explore that a little bit more also. You know, how is that changing? What does that mean? 
um, for our women entrepreneurs uh, and the entrepreneurial ecosystem in general as it relates to them. And then finally, one thought that occurs to us is that um, you, you hear a lot about the, it's not really a backlash so much as a, a general understanding that there's both good and bad associated with this hyper growth in technology in San Francisco. And it would be interesting to get somebody f- who's involved in, at the city, city level in San Francisco right. to come talk about the social and economic and political impacts of this hyper growth tech community that is now firmly ensconced in the city. I think it would be be fascinating to hear about how one goes about planning for that if you're in the planning area for uh, the city of San Francisco. So enough said on that. Let's (laughs) let's jump back into our program here. So a reminder, um, as Doug was um, talking about earlier, the show does re-air throughout the week if you miss it tonight. Um, And this is a talk show. So if you have a question for our guest coming up, you can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So as we mentioned earlier, we're joined now in the studio by our First guest, Duke Chung, the CEO and co-founder of Travel Bank. So Travel Bank simplifies travel expenses for small and medium-sized businesses. It, it was launched in 2016, and prior to Travel Bank, Duke is a, a serial entrepreneur. He co-founded Parature, a customer service startup um, that was acquired by Microsoft. So we're excited to learn more about that in his current venture. Duke, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you both. It's a pleasure to be here. It's exci- well, so we're excited to learn about the background, your background, and I think our listeners are too. So um, could you usually start the show to learn more about you so we can contextualize everything? So can you talk to us about your journey as a serial entrepreneur and what led you eventually to co-found Travel Bank? Uh, sure. Yeah, I... Um Usually you know. we start that question with like, what possessed you? Yeah, right, right, right. That was in parentheses. It was a <laughs> well, it must be in the blood. <laughs> I think a lot of times that's actually very true. Right? Um, I think the entrepreneurs, um, the mindset starts uh, when they're young or something inspires them along the way mm-hmm. where they really uh, start to think this way. Um, maybe something life changes um, that they encounter uh, sort of opens their uh, perspective to entrepreneurism. Um, you know, for me, uh, pointing back to when I was younger, you know, I was always into collecting sports memorabilia. Uh-huh. And um, I think you learn a little bit of the business hustle uh, going through like that. Like sports cards, like, like baseball cards card, and yeah. stuff memorabilia. like that. You know, yeah. you hear a lot of stories like Arbitrage. Like, uh, arbitrage. <laughs> yeah. You learn about how to make money and yeah. you learn about scarcity. Um, mm. And my, I credit my parents a lot for introducing me to that. Um, but of course, as um, I think as you grow older um, and you get more immersed into other categories, you start to learn about different industries. And my story, um, after I'd gone to school at Cornell, mm-hmm. um, I had the privilege of um, going to school during the dot-com era, mm-hmm. which some people probably remember. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. you yeah. may. I, I do remember yeah. it well. I was <laughs> yeah. evaluating whether that was a privilege or a, a train wreck. Was yeah. right. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah. But, um, but we were a byproduct that came out of that period of time. Uh, during school, in the summertime, I would uh, intern at the banks and I would uh, watch the stocks trade of all these companies. As an, yeah. under, as an undergraduate? As an undergrad, yeah. just uh-huh. interning during the summer in some of the investment banks. And we would watch the dot-coms of that uh, time come up, go, come up and mm-hmm. their stocks were like $300 a share. Next <laughs> oh, day, right. it was so $600, you probably remember, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And we were, didn't know what was going on. We just learned every, about every business and what they did. And mm-hmm. there were, you know, most companies had very little revenue. It was a lot about just future potential. Um, and it, it, it sort of intrigued me personally because, um, you know, when you're in that moment, um, you're sort of curious right. uh, and you want to learn about, you know, why these businesses end up where they were and where right. the future of the internet was going. And so in 2000, uh, in 2000, 2001, when I was in college, um, I decided to start my first company, Parature. Uh, I started out of our dorm room mm-hmm. in Cornell. Uh, and, and this is while you were applying yourself full time and diligently to your studies. To that your is correct. Yeah, right. I, I realized <laughs> we're speaking to your report. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is correct. Uh, we didn't share that information with my parents. Right, but, exactly. Um, right. Good. Good. Uh, in the but, library. Right. <laughs> uh, but we did uh, build, you know, one. I think one of the things we had a benefit of being in a university environment was the internet was uh, in high speed mm-hmm. connected around the campus. So a lot of ways I sort of looked at that as we were um, – you know, back then I called it real-time quotes, but there was actually a concept called delayed quotes uh, right. for the stock. And real-time quotes was you'd see all, everything 15 minutes a little earlier than everybody else right. um, because the internet was so slow. But in the campus, everything was real-time. And so when I saw the fast-speed uh, fast internet in the campus was connected through the ethernet, we could kind of see where the technology use cases were going to go right. in the next year or so. 
And oh, um, at the time, um, when we were living in the dorms, uh, we were all connected through this high speed. One of the first products we created was this live chat, which was a way to bring the students together in a um, sort of a closed environment right. through high speed internet. You didn't have to download. Uh, back then there was AOL Messenger and Yahoo Messenger. You had to download these on your client to run it. We wanted to just run naturally through the web and none of the internet was fast enough to power that. And so back then we thought, you know, since we're in the university environment with high-speed internet, let's create something that was very immersive through the internet that any student could actually just connect with each other and have a conversation Mm -hmm. outside of email at the time. And um, that was actually how we started and we were very close to the Blackboard founders. Uh, They were a few years ahead of us. And we thought by partnering with them, we could distribute our product to all the universities. And that's how Paratrice started. And in 2001, I, I remember um, during that summer, we were in our dorm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had all of our computers. Back then, there were towers. You know, you right, sort of right. plug in. Exactly. Can, can I interrupt? Was, sure. that, was that company funded with outside capital, or was that just kind of your own? You're still at it school was, at this we point? It was a hobby. It was a hobby. Wow. It really? was uh, just uh, something we worked on ourselves. Yeah. Um, we took all of our computer equipments that our parents bought us. Uh, we assembled it into the dorm room wow. and wired it up to the campus. So we actually now, maybe now it's okay since maybe it's past the statute of limitations. I was going to say <laughs> that Cornell did help us a lot in the beginning uh, for our infrastructure for hosting right. because everything was hosted out of our dorm room yeah. for free yeah. um, to power all of everything. But uh, summer 2001, something really interesting happened. My One of my co-founders said, since we built a lot, a lot of time creating this product, we said, why don't we put it on the internet and make mm-hmm. it available? And what we discovered in that summer 2001 was uh, by making it available, a lot of these companies started to, small businesses started to sign up for our service for the chat. Wow. And we had no idea why they were using it, but you could see the volume of activity go up. Wow. Um, so much so, I remember there was an evening in Cornell where um, back then there was no air conditioning. So the servers would overheat and they would shut down. Wow. And we would have to get the fans that our parents bought us right. to take them to the window <laughs> and put them on the next oh the server my gosh. and reboot the that. machine to turn it back on. And that happened a lot during the summer because we could see the activity going up. And we reached out to all these businesses and we found out that what they were aspiring to was to be the next Amazon. They were these small businesses in small towns and they were selling, they wanted to move their business online but they didn't have the credibility right. and they felt like our chat was a way to humanize the experience. Uh, oh, at the time. interesting. Amazing. So what happened to Paratur? So Paratur, uh, uh, became a customer service software product. Uh, and, uh, over the years, over you the next 12 years, oh, uh, next 12 years, the next okay, 12 years. Wow. So I continued to work on it. Um, it became a subscription service. Mm-hmm. Um, a product is, uh, is delivered through the cloud. Uh, we moved to Virginia and the business just started to become a customer service platform for every business. So it survived the dot-com yeah. crash. I mean, you were able to, because you hadn't raised outside. That's right. And we started, yeah, oh. in the university environment, maybe, you know, you had the space to work on wow. it. That's correct. 2001 yeah. wasn't so the most So you weathered that time. We, we, we weathered it, or we were a, a uh, byproduct, I call it, out of that. Um, yeah. There was no money uh, around. Yeah. All the venture right. uh, capitalist firms had uh, shut down. Um, no, the last thing they wanted to see was a 21 year old come in right. to their office. Right. Um, and so there was no way at that time to really build a business, uh, with VC money because having gone through the 98 through 2001 period, yeah, yeah. um, it just, it Everything was a reset. shut down. Yeah. That's correct. So I think what that taught us was, uh, we really had to learn how to build a business with revenue from the beginning, which I know is Like strange. doing it the old-fashioned right. way. The old-fashioned like, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. That's correct. Um, now, I would say, now looking back, I think it was very possible because every company in that uh, sort of cohort of we were in was in the same situation. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't like our competitors could go raise a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, we were all in the same situation. So it was almost as if that was the only track. If you really wanted to build a business, you had to do it this way. And so for the first, the next five years, I bootstrapped uh, Paratur up. Right. Um, and the company was uh, almost three to four million of revenue when we raised our Series A That's great. in 2005. Of course, it took that period of time. Can you imagine having revenue when you're raising a Series wow. A these days? Yeah. <laughs> it's not like, it's like, would you fund my company? Yeah. Um, I'm curious. So do you, there must be some great learnings that came out of that, you know, that kind of that bootstrap mm-hmm. environment. Do you carry some of those learnings forward? I mean, I'm going to dial forward now and get into what you're doing today. Sure. But do some of those learnings still exist in the back of your mind about kind of 
basic blocking and tackling? I, you know, I think when you're in, in um, that type of situation, um, every dollar counts, mm-hmm. uh, as you can imagine. Um, one of the things that came out of our um, infrastructure, because we didn't have a lot of capital uh, in the beginning, was um, we, for example, repartitioned a database uh, to support multiple clients, which had never been done before at that time. It was always like, hey, if money was available, just set up one database for every client. Right. And we could only afford one database license. You know, the, yeah. it was like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. So we just said, let's try to get as many clients on this thing as as much as possible. So we could get like two hundred clients on this one database, wow. and we would partition it. Yeah. And it turns out, you know, 10, 20, 10, 12 years later, that that became a major advantage for us from a pricing because we could compete on pricing because we essentially had one infrastructure, right, your fixed cost L- lower was overhead. Lower, yeah. yeah. And I could tell you that if we had raised capital from the beginning, that would never have been a problem we try to solve mm-hmm. because the VC money would have gone in to just go ahead and fund the licenses to scale this business up faster. So you wouldn't have spent time to do that. Mm-hmm. But because we were bootstrapped and building the money, building the business on our own cash flow, uh, we were forced to survive you know, as a uh, unfunded company. Mm-hmm. So for people who are just joining us, we are talking with Duke Chung, who's the CEO and co-founder of a company called Travel Bank. And we're going to ask Duke shortly, what is Travel Bank? But it's an interesting discussion because you're talking about your first whack at the at the ball with a, a company as, an entrepreneur, for, yeah. as an entrepreneur company called Perature. The, the other question I was going to ask you, so when you bootstrap a company like Perature through your own resources and you generate revenue to, to pay the bills and you prolong that point in time when you're actually going out to raise outside capital, you're, so, so the, without synthesizing this. The premise is that you're keeping ownership of a lot of the company at right. the time you first raise out outside capital because your, your pre-money valuation is so much higher. So you kind of walk into uh, the question. Of, it's, it's actually a question <laughs> is y- when you're walking into a new company like Travel Bank, and we'll rapidly get to that. Do you carry with you, Duke, this, this construct in your mind? I'm not giving up no stinking 40% of my company to an outside investor, I expect to, you know, replicate what I had done with Perature and see if I can't do the same thing with, mm-hmm. uh, with Travel Bank. Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, I, I think it's very situational. Um, I'm not sure if we could recreate the Perature uh, period uh, because the environment was very. I was unique. just going to say it's yeah, such a different, a different environment. Time. You know, I one of my uh, investors in my first company at Perature had told me, you know, I, I wasn't I was too young back then, but in the 80s when they were building their businesses, you know, having software engineers was an advantage alone. You know, mm-hmm. the scarcity of software engineers back then was so rare. So the fact that your company had a software engineer was already like, an advantage. Right. Now when I started uh, Perature, it was in the 2000 era, and it was getting more popular. So, you know, more people were going to school to learn how to do computer programming. Yeah. Um, but now roll forward to 2018 and 19, and I come out here to the Bay Area. You know, it's you have all the talent here. It's uh, there's more people focus on um, software engineering and in design and product than ever yeah. before. Right. And so it's hard to um, say that you can bootstrap a company successfully today. It's very I think it's more rare mm-hmm. um, because uh, the time to product market fit becomes an advantage for a company. That's right. If you can do it faster, um, we, it took us five years to get to the product market fit with revenue, of course. Right. So maybe not that long, but essentially I view that period of time as product market fit. Yeah. But in today's era with uh, venture capital, with the talent resources in place, um, in execution, you could get to that same five-year period. A lot of companies out here can do it in two years or right. less. Like you don't have the luxury of five years anymore. That's right. You got to get on it. You because get if on you it. don't do it, somebody else will do it. Yeah. And so I think that's changes the game. Now, of course, we're in a more vibrant economy mm-hmm. where um, all of these resources are available. Um, you know, ask me again if we're in the next recession. Right. <laughs> <That> <laughs> How might do be we different, do when right? you look back? Right. Yeah. But I think, so I say situational because if you start a business today where the economy is... I think you have to be very mindful of, you know, the landscape and right. what your competitors are going to do versus if you start a company in the recession, which we happen to do. I didn't choose to do that. Right. We just we, we didn't have a choice. But and I didn't know what, what the dot com crash meant at the time. Mm-hmm. But situationally to survive, I think the founders or the entrepreneurs, you know, that's what that's why I think a lot of people bet on the people. They have to go out. And I use this phrase 
you know, sometimes when you walk to your outside on the porch and you just know it's going to rain, right? You can feel it. So I think the founders, the good founders out there, they have that sense. They they can they know they step into an environment, they look at the landscape, they look at the economy where things are, they look at what's next. They can get a sense on what's going to happen, and it's really up to them on how they execute to deliver to that. Which you brought to bear with Paratrade, it sounds like you bring it to bear with Travel Bank, which is interesting. The efficiencies and the grit, you know, in the two, in the two thousand one era, served you well. And similarly here, even though the time horizon is compressed, it's really a lot denser because you have to do so much more in a, com- a compressed amount of time. Everybody's like so competitive, right. but those learnings apply just in a different way. Right. It was really interesting. So on that note, I wonder you could share, you know, what does Travel Bank do, uh, and maybe the context. How is the context of how? You, this you know where travel when travel bank is launching differ and how does that inform your approach but yeah. i guess let's start for our listeners what is travel bank sure do? um and before i tell uh, talk about travel bank i'll share a little bit about how i ended up uh, coming up with this yeah. idea or observing it um i once we sold to microsoft mm-hmm. um, post acquisition this is uh, Paracher. a Paracher, yeah. of course uh, this is uh 2014 and i stayed on with our team for about a year and a half mm-hmm. um of course, over that period of time, we were replatforming onto Microsoft's capabilities. And for travel and expense, uh, Microsoft was using Concur. Right. And uh, it was shortly thereafter, I would say, and, within and a month. And that's a well-known software right. platform for SAP managing travel that. expenses? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Okay. Uh, number we one. also, yeah. Yeah, it's number one uh, product in the market, I believe, uh, up, up until now still, and uh, has been subsequently acquired by SAP. So mm-hmm. it's now part of SAP. But you know, when we got there, my employees of post-acquisition consistently... Uh, number one issue every all hands meeting was do we have to use Concur? <laughs> uh, like yuck! It was just very like so much work to use this product, and I and I said, well, how you know how how much work is it? So I I, I said, let me try it. So I went in and I did my own expenses and travel, and I realized, wow, this is this product is you know the company's been around for thirty years, and they had established such a dominant position in in their market. There was really the number two player was so far behind, and it it was almost as if this this segment needed new innovation. And there was nobody there. And uh, and while I was there at Microsoft, uh, they were acquired by SAP for over eight billion dollars. Right, and I, right. when I, I I remember waking up one morning and CNBC was saying, you know, uh, this morning SAP is acquiring Concur for eight billion dollars. I said, is this the same Concur that I'm using? Right. <laughs> I said, like, how is this possible that, that that was the same product? And I, of course it was. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, um, you know, maybe. And I I, I believe this is an enterprise. Uh, business software markets is that everything goes through ebbs and flows in right. every category. And you look at like with Salesforce's success and a lot of people say, well, Salesforce was successful. You know, prior to Salesforce, there was 20 companies doing what they were doing. Right. And the revenue from those companies and those customers are now on Salesforce, right? So right. a new innovation came along and they did a great job and built this entire market up, of course, with the cloud computing focus. And I said, you know, having been in this for the last 20 years, I saw the same thing happen. This was almost like a magical opportunity for us where the number one player of expense and travel was just got acquired by SAP. Right. And it sort of resets the uh, playing field uh, for the next company to come in. That's right. The next generation. Of the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I can't say I've ever uh, built a travel or expense software before. Of course, being a business traveler myself, I've always been on the end user side. Right. Um, but, you know, so we know what the pains are from the end user, uh, but we didn't, we never built this before, but at least we've seen the patterns. And so we decided that, um, the timing was right, you know, to go create something. But our vision was different. I Who's think we, uh, well, I would say I, I left. <laughs> yeah. I decided uh, it was a good time to go uh, create the next Concur mm-hmm. for this space. It was time for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where Concur became successful was in a period of time where when the company, you know, standardized on a product, you don't have a choice. Every employee has to use their product. And I think, you know, you see a lot of parallel analogies, even in my time in Microsoft, where that was how business was deployed. If somebody up top made a decision mm-hmm. and the end users didn't have any say, right. but when they stepped into the situation, they don't have a choice. They have to use whatever the company yep. wants. Yep. That's right. And I think, you know, now when you look at um, the new age of products, you know, you essentially the market has moved from products as features and products as service now to what we call products as experiences. I think employees now have much more say in what products they want. Mm-hmm. And um, only that way will you get the productivity if the users really want the user products. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the, these older products, they, they weren't never built with that mindset. Mm-hmm. And you have to have the mindset from the beginning to build a product that way for people 
uh, to really disrupt this next generation. And so I left to go start this. And, and so the, the vision we had for, uh, we, I had for a travel bank starting this was... Can, can I ask a question? So what were you responding to? You said you had used Concur. It was kind of a top-down right. um, deployment of the product. Take it or leave it. This, it's not leave it. You will take it, whether you like it or not. And you saw you used the product yourself while you were at Microsoft and concluded there, is, there are some obvious openings or opportunities. One was it was there's got to be an easier way to use it that's correct yeah. uh we we i thought that the experience was designed for business users of the last two decades and not right. designed for what i would call uh this modern business user today mm-hmm. which the mindsets are much different than they were in the mm-hmm. past when, mm-hmm. when we were in business and for example um to do an expense report on concur uh it would take you two or three hours you would have to get all your receipts and tape it Right. And upload it and uh, document it. You know, uh, then at least when we were using it, and business travel took a long time to book. You have to go to the desktop and actually sit there and search all your flights yep. and hotels. Right, yeah. You would have to set up. You literally have to set up time in your calendar to do research for the <laughs> right, business. Right. Travel, right? <laughs> oh, travel expenses. <laughs> right, right. That's my half my day. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> it's like don't talk to me. I'm right. doing. I'm doing my research. Right. That's right. And we, you know, in I use that analogy a lot because in today's uh, era of consumer products, what you see is, you know, you push a button and you can order a car, right. or you can order food, um, or you can uh, order a book or listen to music. It's all very fluid and very fast. Right. And you know, the question we had was, why can't business travel be the same? Why can't business travel be one where if you were to download Travel Bank? You know, in two minutes, you can do an expense report right. or in two minutes, you can book a flight. And so when we built the product with that mindset, we made that our mission, which was if you can't do any of these things within two minutes and we failed mm-hmm. to be successful because only this way can we win the hearts of the employees with a very easy to use product. They can do all of this. And, and what it turns out is that people now do expenses on the go. Right. You know, no longer do you sit there for two hours and do your expenses. People that are traveling using Travel Bank, they're in the airport and they just ordered a coffee from Pete's and the receipt comes out and they just take a picture of it and they're taking pictures along the way with their phone. And by the time, anytime they want to submit their expense report, they can do it with a click of a button. So it's almost like you're building your expense report as you go and we're scanning it and actually parsing the data out. Same with the flight. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Um, more efficient. It's much more efficient. Now, a lot of people now when they walk home in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. our users, uh, they're leaving their office, they're going back to their uh, apartment or their house. On their way home, the five blocks, they had done their research for their flight in their hotel in that period of time. So no longer do you have to be sitting so there. So planning forward. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and people are generally much more productive around the product. So we uh, created Travel Bank with a mission to focus on uh, building a very delightful mm-hmm. and a complete uh, business expense and travel app for every business user. And our vision is that over time, we want every business user to be on Travel Bank. And until we fulfill that mission, uh, we'll be working hard every day to to get the next business user on our app. Well, we're going to go deeper uh, into Travel Bank, and, but it's really great to set the stage about the vision for this and then how you're growing um, after the break. Uh, for those of you just joining us, I'm Irina Yen with Doug Collum, and our guest this hour is Duke Chung, the CEO and co-founder of Travel Bank. Uh, please stay with us as we continue our conversation. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on business radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. You're listening to Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania on Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Irina Yen, along with Doug Collum, and our guest this hour is Duke Chung, the co-founder and CEO of Travel Bank. And when we left off before the break, we were talking about um, Travel Bank's story and how it evolved into where it is today, how it came up with the idea. And we just want to continue on that thread a little bit about um, Duke. What's really interesting, um, we're talking a little bit over the break about how incentives are aligned currently for, you know, corporate expense programs. I mean, Travel Bank is a travel planning and expense reporting um, solution. And um, I don't know if you talk about that more. I think that's just really interesting to share with our listeners how it works now and how the incentives are aligned or misaligned maybe, and then how Travel Bank is approaching that. Great. great. Um, 
I, um, one thing we noticed uh, after getting into this business was we decided to focus on the SMB market first. And in the SMB market, a lot of the companies, small, small, medium, small, mediums, yeah. Uh, yeah. small medium-sized businesses, and a lot of those businesses, um, they are not uh, big enough to standardize on a corporate card, although at some point they will. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that uh, a lot of their employees are uh, pre-purchasing or prepaying a lot of the expenses on their own credit card. Right, and then getting reimbursed later. And getting reimbursed later. Um, but what's different today than when we started our first business was, as, as many people know, over the last 10 years, the credit card companies have become so progressive on uh, these reward programs. Right, progressive slash aggressive. Aggressive, yeah. Maybe aggressive <laughs> right. is the right way to say it. But they'll find every way for you to sign up for a new mm-hmm. credit card. And there's uh, companies like Credit Karma and Nerdwild, they're doing great just uh, introducing uh, credit cards to, company, to employees. Um, but in the business setting, what we noticed was that it creates a misalignment. Because while it's great for your personal life to accrue a lot of these points, when you bring that into the business business environment, uh, what it sometimes incentivizes your employees to do is to want to spend more. Right. And um, I certainly noticed a little bit of this at Microsoft when I was at scale. When it was uh, you know running at scale, right. we saw um, this behavior a little bit. And I think in small businesses, especially now, uh, you start to see it as a company scales. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not in the very early stages, but as the company starts to scale, you start to the see it. The premise being that if you spend more, as the in- credit card companies are encouraging you Ticket to points, get yeah. more, more expensive tickets and more expensive uh, accommodations, because then you rack up personal points that's on correct. your card. And yeah. status. And you benefit right. from so that. So that's the misalignment. Right. Okay. And you stack that on, uh, the other dimensions are airline loyalty points right. and hotel lo- loyalty points. Right. So there's multiple reasons why you actually would want to spend more and not less. So how do you get around that? Or how do you undermine it? Right. So um, so this is something we uh, included in the travel bank software to change or change the behavior or to realign the company. Um, we're using uh, our forecasting tool, which is built on an AI algorithm, to predict how much these trips would cost based on real-time pricing. So we could tell uh, a company and the employee for this trip to New York, next week, Mm -hmm. um, the current rates based on today's pricing and across every airline and every hotel, we could forecast how much that trip would cost. So I'll I'll give you guys an example. Let's say um, if you search today and we forecasted that price, um, let's say New York for three days with airfare and and, and, uh, and for hotels, uh, let's say that your total budget came out to be about $2,000, $2,000 and change. So for the first time in expenses, you can actually get the the visibility into how much the cost right. in advance in advance and that had never been done before i always wished i had that in my first business because expenses tend to be retroactive right you know you spend it first and then you submit it for approval and then you look at it and then you see the report like oh my gosh exactly really? <laughs> and you're like oh, but you didn't have a say right because you never knew how much it would cost and i my my joke is that you know, if you're running a sales team you would never do that you would never go to your sales team and say do the best you can right. and we'll see where everything is at the end of the quarter right. for sure you're going to miss your numbers right? right but when it came to the finance side that was how we were taught to run expenses is that go ahead and just uh, spend it first and then expense it. So what we're doing now is with better technology, we can use the real-time forecasting tool to give this information to companies. So at the basic level, they're using that as guidance, but they can take it a step further. Um, If they take it a step further, what they can do is uh, based on the budget, they can turn on our incentive program and they can reward their employees. If they go below Mm $2,000, let's say they only spend $1,500, because they made better decisions, maybe they uh, booked their flight earlier, or maybe they decided to stay at a less uh, expensive hotel, or mm-hmm. maybe even an Airbnb. Let's say they spend $1,500. The company can decide to allow the employee to participate in those savings and split that savings 50-50. So this way, the employee out of the $500 savings will earn $250 mm-hmm. in rewards, and the company will save $250. We'll save the other so $250. So they share the savings. They will share the savings. Yeah. And if you, if you study the math, the more the employee earns, the more the company saves. And so the alignment oh, is now great. in line. Yeah. And it's a win-win because yeah. this way, you know, you, I think I look at all these companies and they create all these policies. Right. And the next new uh, disruptive category comes in like Uber and Lyft. And all of a sudden these companies are scrambling to figure out how to run, create a new policy for that. Yeah. It's never stop, It never stops. But there's the, the employees always find a way to get around the em- policies over time. Mm-hmm. And if you ask any consultant that travels all the time, they have many different ways where they can get around these programs, right? <laughs> right. It's, it's just so a matter true. of time yeah. uh, before that happens. So instead of ch- chasing this problem with a stick, solving it with a carrot, we thought would be a better approach because you don't have to do it. You can that still spend the budget. Sense, yeah. But if you go out of your way, you're not getting a pat on the back. 
you're getting a reward, a, reward. a tangible reward, and it's fair because anybody who does it benefits from it. So if I'm an employee, what do I download? I mean, I can download Travel Bank today or a business traveler employee and I could start using it and use that as a way to submit my expenses without um, having, does the company have to sign on to these reward programs? Does it have to be set up already or how does that work? So typically a, uh, most of our users will just download and start using expenses first because for these SMBs, the small businesses, they don't, they generally don't have a expense system in place. So a lot of it starts at the solo user level. Somebody in the company downloads it and says there's got to be a better way to oh, do an really? expense. Yeah. I mean, you don't. That's what's really interesting. I think. Yeah. Right? I was going to ask. It sounded to me like this is a B two B company where you're engaging directly with the employer. That's right. It's you're saying that's not the case. In fact, you go to the user. We go to the user. We eventually end up How? at the that's company. A, that's insidious. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Well, it's kind of like the Dropbox model, right? right? All the people downloading it, right. using it. it's like, hey, company, I've downloaded Travel. This is a great solution. That's Can correct. we use this? That's so correct. it's really interesting approach. Oh, if you could yeah. talk about that a little bit more I, um, in contrast to what Concur. In, and that's one of the biggest differences. All of our competitors were only top down. Right. They, they use these sales people to go call the companies and say, hey, you should standardize on our product. Whereas we took a different approach. What we believe, back to the spirit of designing a product that the end users really want to use, we believe that the solo users have to love to use our product. Because right. if they don't love it, then there's no point in yeah. forcing all the users to use it. Yeah. So when we design the product, we put a lot of focus on the experience. And we started at the user level, the solo level. And so let's say a company has 100 employees. One employee, it just takes one solo user at that company who historically is doing expenses over Excel or submitting it through email to their controller. They go to the app store and they discover us as a free expense product. So they download it. Once they download, we help, they have a stack of receipts. We help them take photos of everything and create an expense report within two minutes. Mm -hmm. They hit submit and it generates a PDF that they can forward to the controller. And the controller is actually looking at this thing, expecting an Excel spreadsheet with a lot of attachments that they have to go spend time to right. reconcile. But instead, we've created this really beautiful structure, and it says Powered by Travel Bank, and that's usually how the awareness first starts with mm -hmm. the controller. That coworker likes it a lot, and they start telling their other coworkers, and eventually there's a small group within the company that starts using our product. And eventually the controller will standardize, but it's their choice. You know, We're not forcing them. Eventually, we want the users to basically go tell their finance team that we should use Travel Bank. It's easy to use. We should get the whole company on there. And we can facilitate your reimbursement as well. Um, mm -hmm. So once the company standardizes, one reason the company would do that is because they can just automate all the reimbursements for the expense reports through our platform right. as well. So, so this is a good time to, to kind of, from 10,000 feet, a snapshot of Travel Bank. How many employees? Where is it located? Is it funded? Uh, you know, you're... You clearly, you're, it sounds like you're generating revenue. I mean, anything you can share with us that will give people kind of a, a synopsis of the company. Yeah, so we uh, officially launched the product uh, November 2016, mm -hmm. uh, which was about 18 months ago. Uh, um, yeah. We launched with our expense product first. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, 12 months ago this time, which is about six months after we launched, we were adding already about 200 users at different companies every month. Right. Uh, 12 months forward, which is this last April, um, we added 6,000. Mm -hmm. So the company will be uh, about 150,000 users in the system by the end of the year. So it, it is wow. adding users very, very fast. Um, and again, the users are all doing it for expenses. Right. And uh, eight months ago, we launched our bookings, our travel bookings product, beginning with flights. Mm -hmm. And we launched with 200 airlines, uh, including Delta and Southwest, which uh, historically... They don't partner with a lot of uh, companies like us, but they decided to work with us. Uh, we were grateful. And so we launched with them. And now we're starting to see uh, all these flight bookings happening uh, across our uh, install base as well. And what's interesting is out of all the bookings, um, one third of them all have rewards, mm -hmm. which means that the companies have, are endorsing it. Um, they're, they're looking at the decisions before and after you know, before rewards yeah. and after yeah. we give them all the analytics. So we're, we don't hide anything. We actually encourage, we don't force them to do it. We encourage them to consider it. Right. And many companies start without the rewards, but later on they turn it on because they want to see the savings and they can see it for th themselves wow. in the system. Um, how many employees? We have 50 employees now. And um, where, where are they? Um, majority are here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. okay. Um, and we have some in, uh, remote employees, but majority of everybody's here. And the company's attracted um, $35 million in funding in the last 18 months as well. So it's been uh, How fun. long did it take you to raise money? So you're coming out of Periture, which had been acquired, and you had stayed on for an extra year or so. 
And then you stepped out of that and thought, hey, I've got this great idea. How long did it take you to raise money? Did you bootstrap Travel Bank or did you just walk down the street and say, hey, I'm Duke Chung? Serial <laughs> entrepreneur. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, would, I should learn from you guys how that's done. <laughs> it's never that easy. Yeah. Um, I would say um, one advantage we had was we, on our, my, my, our first business was very successful. So I think that gave us some more credibility coming here to the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, we did have some validation of the idea coming out of Microsoft. This was a good concept. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got out to the Bay Area, the first thing I did so was... So you moved from the East Coast to the West Coast to get this company To launched? get this company oh, started, really? yeah. You know, did we look to Seattle for Microsoft? No. Uh, we didn't. We stayed in uh, Virginia, oh, okay. and I considered it. Um, I thought maybe eventually it'd come out to the West Coast, right. um, but I, you know, having built Paratrue out of the East Coast, um, one of the bucket list items I wanted to do in my life was build a company out here in San Francisco. And so I took the opportunity to say, let's come out here and build this business and see how different it is. So I have a very interesting perspective of having built a company on the East Coast versus on the West Coast. And that I think is pretty rare because a lot of people just come here and build their businesses and they're so successful. They sail off in the sunset. They never do another company. (laughs) But I'm uh, I'm more rare that I started a company on the East Coast and then came out here to start. So So I actually have been here for a year and a half. Two years? Uh, for two years, a little over two years, um, starting this business, wow. and um, so raising capital was a snap. You kind of walked, knocked on a few doors. Hey, you guys know who I am, and I'm <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we, how, how much, how we, much money uh, did it yeah, do? Yeah, well, us? I mean, you've got great investors. NEA, Excel, for example, no DCM, right. right? Excel uh, backed my uh, first business, and uh, so it was natural they wanted to come back and to help us with this new venture and be a part of this story. Mm-hmm. And NEA, we had known for many years as well, and um, they also wanted to find an opportunity to work with us. And and we raised the money before we started. Uh, working on the product, which was amazing. I think that well, that's very unusual. You, yeah. It's very right. unusual because having gone through the experience of Paratrue, you know, we spent five years building a product with revenue, and this was a, almost a situation that was the reverse, which right. was these investors really liked the idea we had, and I can genuinely say that the money that they be, they invested in uh, with us was mainly because of the team we had. Uh, and the idea, and ideas change, I think, over time mm-hmm. as uh, the businesses get developed. But uh, they had really good uh, conviction in us to go build something. And so this travel bank happened uh, much faster. We walked in and we raised the Series A. We took the money. The Series A was $10 million right. and included um, some of my money and some founders in this area, in the Bay Area, oh. that I talked to to validate the idea. They all came back and said, this is a great idea. Um, we should use it for our own business, yeah. and I want to invest as well. So very quickly, we were able to assemble $10 million, and once we had the capital, we went to work to go build the product. That's great. Uh, and now take it to market. So for people just joining us, you are listening to Bay Area Ventures. I'm Doug Collum. I'm here with my co-host, Irina Yen, and we are talking with Duke Chung, who's the CEO and co-founder of a company called Travel Bank, which sounds like it's taking the market by storm. Right. I, I wanted to ask the question, um, when you're raising money, the, the normal paradigm these days is you have to bootstrap, you have to show traction of some sort, demonstrating that there's a product market fit, that their customers actually have a need for the product and they like the particular product that you're providing. So you did this ass backwards. You basically, <laughs> you basically came in with your team and a PowerPoint and said, you know, here's our idea, here's our vision. If you fund us, they will come. I mean, was that kind of the premise? You got away with that? We, we, <laughs> it sounded like a Silicon Valley episode. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. We, um, and I liked how you described it, Doug, uh, ass backwards. Uh, it, at least we had the other experience first time. Right. So at least we right. did one of each. One half. Um, right. I, I, that was how this started. I, you know, again, I think the investors saw us, um, they were really believing in us. Um, and I look at a lot of early stage companies and I talked to a lot of early stage founders. You know, I think what it comes down to at that stage before, even if you have a great idea, um, I believe that a lot of it comes down to the people mm-hmm. because many times, 12 months later, the ideas change because once they get into market, they realize certain things are different. And, I, you know, ultimately the success of a lot of these companies are whether or not those founders can weather those decisions right. along the way. And sometimes they get lucky that those are bonuses, but other times there are difficult moments and how strong is the founder or entrepreneur able to navigate the product market fit course before they run out of capital? That's usually the time horizon. 
um, that I see in a lot of early stage companies. Or in other words, a lot of ideas change <laughs> 12 months later at that early stage. Um, and so I think they believed in us and they, um, we had at least some validation of the concepts right. uh, in place. And uh, they really believed in us and gave us a chance to go build this product. So they believed in you, and they're now they're looking at you, as Doug mentioned, steely-eyed about revenue. So can you talk a little bit about the business model, which is really interesting because we, earlier we talked about how you're different in that you, know, you come from bottoms up, if you will. Like users can download it. It's a free download. And ultimately, the customers, like the SMB or small or medium business. So if I'm a small or medium business owner who's listening, um, what's the business model? Yeah, so we, unlike our uh, older competitors that are all selling the software on a typically on a subscriptions mm -hmm. uh, license per user in the company, you know, we didn't want to do the same thing. You know, we had already done that in our first business and grown up in that period of time in the subscription economy. Uh, we believe that we need to do something different. And uh, part of our mission to uh, provide this technology for every business user out there, we wanted to reduce the barriers of entry. Right. Only that way can every company afford this, right? right. No longer is this only available for the, the, most, you know, the, the wealthy companies out there. But even the small businesses, you know, they don't have a lot of money. We were there in the right. beginning. And they should be able to benefit from this product as well. So the idea was how do we reduce the barriers of entry for the small businesses? And we decided let's make it free for these companies mm. so they can start using our expenses and also start booking travel through us. When users book travel through us, um, we have uh, uh, partnerships with all of the suppliers. Suppliers for us are airlines and hotels. We right. work with hundreds of them. Um, in the hotel business, we have thousands of properties. So we've worked on establishing relationships with all of these suppliers. Mm -hmm. When our users book a flight or book a hotel, uh, we will get paid by the suppliers. Got the suppliers it. will oh, pay us. and not right. by the user. By the, not by the user. And, and nor by the company. Nor by the That's company. Right. And so this so business... the incentives are aligned. <laughs> yeah, the incentives are aligned. Right. So the way the economics work is our clients get to enjoy really great software. Their employees can benefit from the incentives to earn rewards. Mm -hmm. And we provide the service and we make money from the suppliers. And the suppliers are interested in reaching the SMB as right. well, because historically they've worked with the larger competitors to reach the fortune 500 companies, but they want to find a more effective way to reach the long tail right. small businesses. And there are Huge more than market. 5 million small businesses here in the U S the cost to acquire these businesses are too high. So a lot of these suppliers don't want to chase them. Mm -hmm. But if we uh, grow to be a very large business and we can reach this audience at scale, then we have a way to bring this inventory to the suppliers in a more scalable way. So where are you in your stage of growth right now, as you mentioned, scaling? Because it's been, I guess, since 2016, you've launched with your product, you have the travel, the expense management, you just la launched bookings. How's it going? How's growth, if you could paint a picture for us? Yeah, so going? it is... Um, it's last Sleeping. year we just yeah we <laughs> launched the bookings uh, product um, and I would say we had less than a million of uh, bookings last year for four months mm -hmm. uh, and this year it looks like it will be in the tens of millions already in the first quarter we already have that scale so it's uh, growing very fast part of it is um, the opportunities we're working on out here the companies um, they themselves spend a lot on travel mm -hmm. um, it's not uh, typical that a company will spend at least a million dollars but. We have clients now that have are spending five million a year. We have clients that are spending ten million a year in travel, wow. and as they're scaling their own businesses up, um, you know, we've talked to companies that are, I think, on the higher end, spending like eighty to hundred million a year on travel. Wow. And so the idea is, uh, if we're able to serve their businesses um, and have them book through us, then you know, we'll be able to earn some uh, revenue from them. I wonder if we can shift the conversation and come back to you, which is, <laughs> have you made the comment, Duke, about? You know, doing a company in Virginia is a whole different thing than doing a company here. And, you know, the, the audience for this program is national. I, and I wonder if you have any thoughts or comments or insights you wanted to share about what are those differences in good, bad. The, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious to know where you come out on it. Because you grew up on the, West, on the East Coast, and now you've been here in Silicon Valley for two years. So, yeah. Could you talk about that? You know, I, a lot of my investors asked me that question. And, um, you know, the first thing that I realized coming out here was that uh, building a product, especially the way that we're delivering the product for all these businesses out here, um, the f number one thing I noticed was the product expectations in the Bay Area are much higher. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Faster, right. better, cheaper, that kind of thing? Uh, like almost almost well, done by the time you launch. <laughs> oh, actually, uh, meaning the quality mm -hmm. expectations of the product are higher. They're higher baselines mm -hmm. for your oh. product. Uh, meaning that, you know, for Paratroom, when we built out of the East Coast, and we served a lot of customers in specific verticals on the East Coast, uh, not a lot of high-tech companies because most of them were out here. You know, we felt like we could make a lot of money. We never had the pressure to develop the product to the level that 
um, I see the companies out here doing. Right. And so, for example, when we got out here, um, our first version of our product, we had a lot of our new friends in the Bay Area try it, and they would come back and say, well, Duke, the idea, your idea is great, but your product is not that good. Mm-hmm. And, I, and at first, I wasn't that offended by it because we were so early. But then the second time when I went back to them and said, here's a new product, and they still said it wasn't that good. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> and the third second. time, <laughs> they started to wonder, did these guys actually sell a company to Microsoft right. before? <laughs> so I, um, one thing I realize and I appreciate a lot more about this area that I hadn't realized before is that not only are decisions made much faster for a lot of these companies, but the expectation for the quality of the product is higher for them. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's good because you see so many products here in the Bay Area, even in your consumer uh, life. And of course, in your business life, you're seeing some amazing products being built in this generation. So you're spoiled as a user living here. You see the latest and greatest. And so we, in order for us to compete, we have to build to a higher product baseline. And um, one of the things we did is we changed our thinking on our product design. You know, we hired more consumer designers mm-hmm. to design our product because consumer designers tend to, we think, hire, you know, design to our higher baseline. Right. And so we started to look at, and so if you look at our product, one of the things we're really excited about is uh, building a great experience, mm-hmm. a beautiful product, one that people really want to use. Mm-hmm. And uh, we completely changed our mindset after right. moving out here. So and that approach was informed by just being out here. And just saying, by being out here. Yeah. If I didn't move out here, I wouldn't have realized that uh, as well. And I think you have all of the other ingredients here as well. Um, we have um, uh, access to really great talent here in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many great companies here. And naturally, if you move out here to the Bay Area to start a company, um, your mindset's already um, you know, to succeed. And so when I look at a lot of the companies here, I, I, I find that about 70% of the people that end up in San Francisco aren't from this area. They've right. moved here to start their it's businesses. True. And they only do that for one mindset because they want to build something great out here. And, um, and we're very much part of that same ecosystem. Uh, but as a result of that, and also the access to capital right. uh, out here is very different than I would say in parts of the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have all the ingredients out here to build a business. It only takes what it really takes is the mindset and I, of the founders and the timing of their idea and their ability to execute out here is really what they have to focus on. So I only have about a minute and a half left, and I was wondering, uh, from from more usage, do you like the West Coast? I mean, at a personal level, do you like so far so good? Or yes, the you stick still, around, the right? Jury, <laughs> or, or the jury's still out. I like it. Um, I, I've learned so much being here uh, just in the last two, three years. Um, I would say almost as if I'd been here for a decade in the East Coast. Um, that's mm-hmm. how fast you're able to learn. Wow, it's true. Um, it's so easy to be inspired out here uh, in the Bay Area. There's so many uh, amazing people doing great things. And uh, to be in this environment um, is really amazing. So I think that now looking back uh, in I, my first business, um, you know, aspiring to be out here to build a business is, I mentioned something I wanted to do on my bucket list. I think it's a great decision. In retrospect, I probably would have done that earlier if mm-hmm. I'd known this. Have you known? Yeah. But now I know, and um, and here we are, and I think we're uh, off to doing something amazing with Travel Bank, and our really? uh, commitment will be uh, to build it out of the San Francisco area mm-hmm. and to uh, continue to focus on uh, scaling this business up into something great. Well, you're off to a great start. Well, we're out of time. That's gone by way too fast, Duke. Um, we've been speaking this hour uh, with Duke Chung, the CEO and co-founder of Travel Bank. Duke, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, and to find out more about Travel Bank, you can visit Travel Bank, travelbank.com. And where else can they reach you, Duke, if people want to learn more? Uh, they can uh, find us on the app stores, uh, mm-hmm. download our product on both the Apple App Store or the Google Android. Travel Bank. Under Travel Bank. Bank. Okay. And, uh, of course, visit our website and come chat with us. Uh, we're here to help everybody. Okay, great. Um, just ahead, we'll be speaking with Lauren Farley, the CEO and co-founder of Shopping App Dote. I'm Irina Yen, along with Doug Collum, and you're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 